Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, I'd like you all to sit quietly and join me in downward toaster position. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Our guest today is Gabrielle Hartley. Gabrielle is a national recognized divorce attorney, online mediator, and divorce strategy coach with a strong focus on conflict resolution. She is the author of Better Apart, The Radically Positive Way to Separate. She joins us today to share how she brings mindfulness to the divorce process. Get ready to release, have renewal, and recalibration. Welcome to the toaster. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. She says that now, Pete, but she just got here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know, right? She has no idea. This is going to be great, though, because I, I do think this is important um, uh, because it's something that we don't talk about very often. And it's this whole idea of mindfulness in the divorce process. The first thing I get on your, your I start reading all your goodies on your website. And it's it, the, the first thing is like, let's start talking about introducing yoga and breathing and a mindful. I'm reading the book. And it's like this, this is all about bringing exercises to a cold process, right? And so, so much of this I, I want to hear from you is like, how do you and why do you, why is it important to rehumanize the law for people in the divorce process? So, I, I want to start with the first comment you made that this was a cold process. My experience of the divorce process is actually not at all a cold process. It's a, um, it's really a reconfiguration of a family. And that's always how I have approached it. Um, when I was nine and my brother was six, my parents divorced and they sort of held themselves out to be sort of like just the beacon of divorce couples. They had shared custody when nobody back when I was a kid had shared custody. My dad was very involved with us and we were looked at as like that weirdo family. And, um, when I got to law school, the last class I was ever going to take was family law because I was like, so done with the topic. I had a lot of opinions about it. I had a lot Wait of a experience. With a all Brooklyn kinds of- lawyer has opinions <laughs> about things. Slow down. Stop the presses here. <laughs> so I, I, I took family law pass fail. I was never going to be a family lawyer. I wound up within a couple of years, clerking for a New York State Supreme Court judge who heard only family divorce called matrimonial matters. And I was about 29 or 30 years old when I started to work with him. And I quickly saw, first of all, how lucky I was. I learned that the divorce process is really horrific for most people. And I knew firsthand as someone who had grown up with parents who never went to court, that it didn't have to be that way. And so, you know, the, the secretary for the judge used to make fun of me and say, are you doing downward dogs in the, in the back room? And you have to understand, I'm on Staten Island <laughs> and in Brooklyn in like the early 2000s. Nobody's doing downward dog yet. That's like a, you know, 2018 kind of thing. So I know I was not doing downward dog, but I was infusing some humor and asking people to take a step back and doing a lot of reminders um, about like, you know, what we're really doing here. This is, this is a recalibration of your family. And that's all it is actually like the drama 
that's sort of like for the, some of the lawyers, that's the fun part, right? For the, let's be honest, the rabbit holes that exist in every single conversation as I now exclusively mediate and I hear people telling their perspective of the divorce, um, my lawyer brain is hearing, oh, argument, you know, $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, right? Like, because there are so many things that we can spin out of control. And sometimes I ask people if they want me to, you know, sort of re help them to reframe. And that's where to answer your question, how did mindfulness get involved with that? When our thinking brain is flooded by emotion, there is no space for any um, logic or any reflection problem or solving. any there's no space for problem perspective. solving and that's what you're trying to do you get that's if you're right. going to recalibrate right you're solving the problem that we got to fix this that's exactly and right if, if you're going through the emotional aspect of that then then you've got to set that aside and we've had other guests say we, we just set our ego aside that's another way to say emotion right and to figure out what are the problems where do we agree? Where do we disagree? And how do we get through this process? But we are interested in how we end up doing Downward Dog because I know Pete's got some yoga questions coming. I can just feel it, you know? Bring me a solid warrior <laughs> two on a Thursday afternoon and I'm in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about this release, renewal, recalibration. Take us through the kind of the little outline there. Okay, so so first of all, just just to satisfy Pete's curiosity about the yoga positions, we don't actually do yoga in my mediation studio, right? Like, you have just shattered my worldview of we, you, and I regret that. <laughs> we do talk about the value of breathing. We do talk about the value of slowing down. We talk about the transferring from a positional base to an interest base approach. Like, what do we need? What's our why behind what we want? Um, so, Seth. To answer your question, in order to get to an agreement or a resolution, we need to have a release, which is where you can actually, where, where the parties actually are feeling a little bit of a reprieve from the intense mental loop that's circling in their mind, that's fueling the fire. So from within the context of a mediation, there's a lot of listening and a lot of validating and a lot of probing. How do you think this is going to make you feel? It's not therapy, but it is a probing into the why. Now, some people, when I tell them, you know, let's think about the why instead of the what, some people can just go there. So I don't need to spend a session sort of getting it out of them, right? But once we get to the why, and once we get to the, the release, then we can recalibrate. So recalibration is once there's like the space in our minds to feel um, open to different op to, to different um, perspectives. That's where the um, creativity comes in. And I imagine Seth, as a as a family lawyer, you're well aware of how much creativity it takes to satisfy both sides who have very different narratives, right? Oh, well, I think what you're saying is directly on point is that when you talk about what your is your underlying interest as opposed to your position, and we've discussed this a little bit before, Pete, on other shows where we're talking about your why. Why do you want to keep the house? Well, because it's good for the kids. It's a good school district. 
I think we can afford it even if someone else moves out. Like there's all these other things that go along, but then you get to that, what you're calling recalibration, which I love that term to get creative in coming up with a solution to a problem because both parties have the same problems, though they look at them very different ways. They're splitting their finances. They're dividing up where the children are going to spend their time. Now, people immediately think, well, that other side, he's never been involved in the kids. Why is this a problem now? Now I want, well, because it's a problem. So let's deal with it. So I agree with you that once you get to the underlying interests, that is a way to be creative to then solve that problem in recalibration. That makes absolute sense to me. Well, if you look at the problem, like you're saying, the problem is the what we're fighting about, but why we're fighting about it can be actually really different, right? Like the guy wants custody. I'm, this is really being sexist gendered. So I apologize already, but like the guy wants custody and the woman wants to have primary custody. And the problem is who's going to have the kids and why the guy wants custody is because he's afraid that he might be boxed out if he doesn't have shared custody, right? And the woman, the, the mom might feel like, well, you were never there before. You never really pulled your weight. Um, you don't even know who the kids' teachers are. How could you possibly have shared custody? You know, many times the dad doesn't really care about having exactly 50-50 parenting. They want to be involved, right? Now, sometimes they do care and sometimes things have to be have to go to trial, but sometimes there are small shifts that we can make in the way we're looking at things, small ways to um, recalibrate the agreement. So instead of saying 50-50, we focus more on the schedule rather than the label. Right. And, uh, and along with that, I think that's absolutely correct, where I believe that nobody, when they have children, look at a calendar and say, how much time am I going to spend with this child over the next 18 years? Well, they look at it when they know that it has to do with child support. That's the problem. Well, when you get divorced, you look at it because lawyers and judges make you look right. at it that way. But when we say, why do you want time? And it's because you want to have enough time in your child's life for your, to have a positive relationship where your child comes to you in good times and bad when they're 5, 15, and 25, and 35, and 45, if you're playing the long game and not just this short 18-year right. period. If your kids are 10 and 12, you're arguing over six to eight years. You know, If you're looking at the long term, if you cannot create that relationship, as you say, by looking at a calendar where it might be 60-40 and you're the guy with the 40%, that extra 10% of time is not going to help you. If you can't get it done in 40%, what's the extra 10 going to do? So I think that's right. You look at a calendar and not get focused on these percentages. Exactly. I want to take just a quick step back. When you're talking about all these, you're asking the question, why, 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 why? How often do you run into the situation where people come to you and they think, okay, uh, we want to get a divorce. Why do you want to get a divorce? Why are you feeling these ways? That, that inter interrogative kind of introspective interrogation, do they come back and say, oh, I don't know. Maybe divorce isn't the outcome. So I, I am not a discernment therapist. I'm no, no kind of therapist, but like, should I stay or should I go is outside of my wheelhouse, right? Only if people come in and they say a lot of wistful things, you know, and that does happen. And then I say, are you sure you want a divorce? 
you know, have you done all you can do? You know, I heard a statistic that only about 18% of couples who seek divorce have ever gone to couples counseling. And I find that alarming as a divorce attorney and as someone um, who has spent, you know, much of, I've spent much of my marriage in couples counseling. There I go. I d- don't ask me any follow-up uh, questions. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Just crack that door open for us, Pete. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, but, I, know. I mean, because, okay. you know, people have different personalities and sometimes people need assistance in communicating better because you don't necessarily marry the person who you communicate the best with. You know, That's you, the guy you're having sure. the affair with. That and communication so- is good. that's exactly right exactly no but i will tell you when when i went through my divorce i sought counseling to help me get through it and then i would have what i would call check-ins um maybe every six months maybe once a year and i asked my uh counselor my therapist at the time i'm like so do you worry about me like in a professional sense like you know do i need to be having these check-ins she's like no but i only worry about the people that aren't in counseling the people that are here doing work we're good exactly exactly i was just thinking about that like at what point does that become a a deciding indicator for somebody who's going to get divorced when they decide to go to counseling like is it after we've already decided our marriage is failing and we we just need help separating or is it the people who are doing it like protecting their marriage first, right? So when you're already ready to throw in the towel, going to some counseling can still be helpful because there's a much greater likelihood that you're going to tone down that emotional flood, be able to be more mindful in the moment, make better decisions, and keep your divorce at the settlement table and out of court. So really, even if counseling isn't going to save your marriage, it can still save your your unmarriage, your dissolution. And if you have kids, it can open a new way of communicating to go forward, even if you couldn't quite work it out within the context of your marriage. And there's some cases where people really ask the spouse, I want to work on our marriage. I don't think where we need to be. I feel like we're not connected. I want to go to counseling to get reconnected. And the other might say no, because they think it's the check the box before you get divorced. So by not going, we're not checking the box to move to the next step. Now, there's no requirement, as you said. There's a statistic out there that says only 18% of people that get divorced actually went to counseling. But then if when push comes to shove and divorce is on the table, and then they finally say, okay, I'll go to counseling. Like If that's what it takes to wake them up, that relationship, they might stay walking this path on earth together and not go their separate ways. So when you're going through this process and they have the release, you're being creative with recalibration. We, we never got to renewal and I'm such a check the box list guy. I got to get to renewal because I want to understand that concept. And what do you mean by that? So renewal is the best part. Renewal is what we're looking for. It's, it's when we're stepping away from the blame game, we're getting into active visualization where the magic happens. You know, we stop with the um, retros, retroactive looking at things and we start to be proactive at how we're looking at things, right? Like no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in that direction. Let's turn it around, right? So that renewal is only available after you've had that cathartic emotional release 
again, that could happen wherever. It could be, you know, at home with your friends by yourself in the deep dark of the night. It could, it could happen at the mediation table if you have a mediator who's very actively engaged and saying, so it sounds to me like it feels to you like your whole life was a lie, right? After she disclosed that the husband's been cheating on her for the last 20 years. And then you have to, have, if you're the mediator, you have to quickly say to the husband, um, before she says that, I'm not saying this is true or weighing on the validity of this. Like you have to just basically make sure that if you are mediating, that everybody feels like their position is being heard. But by reflecting back and by validating that deep hurt for the person who often won't budge, somehow that releases something in their minds and makes them more open. And then you start looking forward, then you start solving the problems and you can move on. Exactly. So it feels like so much of this, you're, you're, uh, like you're rebuilding character for people in this process, like character that has been broken from maybe like you're dealing with them when they were, this is not an adult person sitting in the room with you. This is a nine-year-old kid who's broken inside, uh, trying to figure out how to, how to come to the table when they don't want to. And Pete, it can feel like that for people going to, through a divorce. It can feel like you're alone and no one else is going through what you're going through. And then they call me and I say, I assure you you're not alone because I can't even get in front of the judge for six months because there's so many other people going through what you're going through. <laughs> oh, but my divorce is different. My yeah. husband oh my is goodness. X, right? I, I will get calls. How are you right. good at dealing with narcissists? And I'm like, Every day I deal with narcissists or every day I deal with a client whose perception is that their husband is a narcissist, right? So those are- Doesn't that make th them the narcissist? <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, I know, who's the gaslighter? Yeah, right. Uh, exactly. If you look around the room and you can't figure out who the narcissist is. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, everyone going through, the word narcissist is thrown around so much. You know, there's the malignant narcissist, there's the covert narcissist. I think the label is helpful in as much as it explains a set of traits or personality quirks that are coming up through the divorce. Um, but I do think it's thrown around pretty fast and loose. And you just have to understand as, as a divorce practitioner that people are doing the best they can and they basically feel like crap when they're going through the divorce. I mean, to, to your point, um, Seth and Pete, I think when people are going through a divorce, they often do feel like nine-year-olds sort of like scraping to just live and to understand like how they're going to get through this because it's one of the most difficult things that any of us can experience. Well, and I think to that point specifically, who you are going through the divorce process, my hunch is it's not who you are day to day. Exactly. I, I said to, um, I'm going to get this, I don't know if I'm going to get this the right way around. I have a good friend who is an OB and I said, you see terrible people during the best time sometimes, right? Because they're so happy they have this yeah. baby, even if they're like, you know, not the nicest people. I see wonderful people during terrible times. So, right. I mean, how often yeah. does a yeah. client go off on you and then call and apologize because they're just upset. And so you're sort of like, yeah, that's what they say about the criminal law attorneys is that they've, they see really bad people on really good behavior. Because oh, when true. you're sitting in court and you're the criminal 
you know, uh, you're sitting at the defense table and you're the alleged criminal, you're going to be on your best behavior. When exactly. you're in family law court, you see really good people at acting at their worst behavior, right? That's right. So that's right. A lot of wrangling. So I mean, like I think that um, it's never boring working with people getting divorced. Like a lot of people say, "How can you do it? Isn't it depressing?" And I'm like, I didn't decide that they're getting divorced. Like I, I that's outside my wheelhouse. Like I said before, I'm helping them extricate their financial entanglements and manage their children. And, you know, the rest of it is really up to them. I tell them about the better apart process. I, I do give them some breathing exercises. I do hand them each a book and, you know, encourage them to read it because there's lots of writing exercises and yoga um, poses that are helpful to get through. So, so Pete has trouble breathing. Can we, can we take Pete through a breathing <laughs> exercise? Yeah, sure. I love to take you through a breathing exercise. Let's do Pete, it. Let's all do it together. So this is what we're going to do. All right. We're, all all right. we're all going to close our eyes and we're going to do, we're actually going to do a box breath, which is a little harder than just regular breathing. We're going to breathe in for five. We're going to hold it for five. This is advanced. You really have to only do it for three. In for five, hold for five, out for five, hold for five at the bottom. We're going to do it three times and I'll count. So I'm going to do it. Ready? Okay. Close your eyes. Here we go. Hold. Breathe out through your nose. Hold at the bottom. Breathe in. Hold. Through your nose, out again. Hold at the bottom. One more time in through your nose. Hold. And now slowly release as long as you can through your nose. Now slowly open your eyes. I see, Pete, you're cheating. Your eyes were sort of open already, but that's okay. It's hard for people to close their eyes. All right. Um, to be fair, your timer was on video, so I had to watch your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a yoga teacher. We've never, <laughs> we've never been that quiet before on the show. That was good. Uh, that is true. Yeah, shut me right up. So, that was great. I, I, uh, that's a, a, a great practice, and I'm a little lightheaded. What what does that do for people? What 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 should have we felt going through that? Before I, before I tell you what you should have felt, why don't you guys tell me what you did feel? I heard lightheaded. Oh well, that was me being funny. Mostly, I I I find it a, a centering practice. Even though I was watching you, I do find like eventually there's a sort of experience of kind of. Uh, a, a curtain coming down and there's like silence, right? I just feel a sense of like silence that, that they're like, as, as if there's a huge noisy party going on outside and I was just able to close the window, right? And there is, there's a, a renewed ability to focus and think clearly and uh, relax. And what, what about you? Oh, I, it's similar. I, I'll probably describe it differently is I'm very then inward thinking. So um, I have less distractions. I'm not, focused on whatever might be buzzing around me or in my head even if you just focus on that one thing on your breath and that's a lot a lot, a lot of what uh, meditation is is just focusing on your breath and 
right. when you when you're sitting there trying to meditate and you're like, oh, my lower back hurts. And instead of being like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm thinking about my lower back. It's like, I feel my lower back. I'm going to let that go back to breathing. And that just gives you this renewed sense of being able to accomplish things when even if it's just a few minutes. Um, I have a friend would drive his three children to school every morning and it was a nightmare in the car. You know, the one kid's in the middle seat, they're all arguing, this hurts, what that, I forgot this. And he started teaching them meditation on the way to school to keep things calm in the car. And it has just totally um, really become a focus point of their life as a family and individually. Um, and he says he'll take a break in the afternoon and meditate for five or 10 minutes in the office. And it makes the rest of the afternoon just that much better. So I think this breathing is is a good concept that is easy to start to practice. I love that. I, I have three kids who are equally difficult in the car. And my remedy was I would blast, you know, Hamilton, which they'd all start singing and that would oh, stop yeah. from fighting. But but to, to circle back to how this could help in a divorce um, is if you give this tool to your clients or if you yourself are listening um, to this podcast when you're getting divorced, Try to integrate this into your life three times a day, morning, the middle of the day, and the evening, just for like a minute. I mean, five minutes is optimal, but if you just do the five rounds, just so you have the um, memory of what it feels like to be calm and centered and present, right? And then when you're at the mediation table, when you're in the courtroom, when you're feeling antagonized by your ex out in normal life, you don't need to make a show of it and like breathe loudly or close your <laughs> eyes, you know, but you can just slowly slip, sip in some breath, hold it, let it out. You don't have to, I mean, again, optimally, you're going to do it really strong and there's going to be a noise like an ocean, but like in life, you don't have to do it that way, but you can still slow down. You can't think about whatever's upsetting you or whatever noise is coming at you or whatever noise is within you if you are thinking about breathing or counting the counting um, the seconds that you are breathing. So it's not just a distraction, but it pulls off your brain as well as your entire body. Don't ask me more science questions. I'm a, medi- I'm a mediator and a lawyer and not a mental <laughs> health professional or a physician. But it doesn't matter because I, I think this is really, I, I, I love that we're even just talking about this because the whole idea of slowing down, you know, it's, it's like that, um, uh, this this great sort of practice of thinking more slowly and yes. m- my hunch is we when you're in the divorce process you are doing your best just to keep up right there's yeah, hurry up and wait hurry up and wait hurry up and wait yeah it's definitely disney world i agree with that pete the other thing that happens in court and remember in court the judge is always evaluating you even when you're not on the stand mm-hmm. so when that lawyer on the other side is asking questions of your spouse and it's just lies. Like you'll want to jump over the table and jump up and say, they're lying. You you have all these just visceral reactions that are going to happen. And the judge, and I've seen it, look at people in the courtroom and say, ma'am, you need to stop making faces when I'm listening to testimony. Like that's a bad sign for you okay uh. so if you can stay calm and composed and the other thing to realize is that you've hired a lawyer who is hearing all this who knows should know how to counteract that 
if they need to, because some lies help your case. Absolutely. One, the judge might know that the other side is lying and that it's not credible. If the judge already finds it not credible, and I can read that on the judge's face because most of our communication is nonverbal, then I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. And the, my client will say, why didn't you like attack them on that issue? I said, because the judge didn't believe them. And when you're winning, keep your mouth shut. That is a really big tip, right? But clients uh, don't know that, right? They're people like, don't know that. Like right. in real life, I try yeah. to teach up my kids. Like, you know, my middle son will come back. I'm like, I already ordered the thing. I'm going to return it now. Like, stop it. <laughs> <right?"> <laughs> like, but wait, I want to give you one more little practice tip for your clients. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, like this is from um, Amy Cuddy's work on power positions. I don't know if you guys are aware of Amy's work. Um, so before I would go in for a hearing, or even now when people are coming into my office, I encourage all of my clients to, you know, go into the bathroom if they're at the courthouse. And take 10 deep breaths in and out. I know, well, we're not showing this video anywhere. So I'm going to have you guys do it right now. Let's all stand up. Everybody, get up. Up, up, up. You. Go ahead, Seth. Get up. Say Brooklyn bossy. I feel it. (laughs) So what you're going to do is um, I want you to be expansive. Reach all the way up. And I want you to poof out your chest and close your eyes. And you're going to do 10 breaths just in and out through your nose. Here we go. I'm going to count out loud. So you don't have to look. Ready? One. Out. Two, stretch higher. Out. Three, deeper. Out. Reach really high. We're going to just do five, actually. Four. Okay, now this is going to be your last one. Let this out. And then with the last breath, I want you to take it in. And I want you to really reach to the stars. And let it out. Now lower your arms. And just feel the sensations in your body. How do you feel? I feel short. (laughs) (laughs) That is not what you're supposed to say, Seth. You keep saying reach higher. I'm like, I'm 5'6 on a good day. That's all I've got. (laughs) So... Anybody feel anything other than short, Pete? No, that was great. That's uh, you. I feel tingly, right? It's like I I feel it all up and down my spine, and my scalp is kind of in it, you know, engaged. Like I feel uh, present and accounted for. Check your local jurisdiction. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And you're going to be energized. You're going to be more present, and your body language is going to suggest that you're present. And you're a little more calm. And if you do that, coupled with the breathing, it can really be game-changing. And these are like just two of many, many, many simple little hacks or tips or whatever you want to call it in Better Apart. So even though I work as a mediator and I don't go to court and I really believe in mediation when it's done with a lawyer in consult, or at least there's that real opportunity for a lawyer consult, I didn't write Better Apart for people necessarily in mediation. I wrote it for people who have you know, tough divorce litigators like Seth, like Lisa, the lawyer I work with in Manhattan. I wrote better apart for people who are going through the most difficult, heated divorces, because I know that they can feel very alone. And most lawyers are not going to give them all of this kind of attention because it's 
just not the usual way forward. So I, I was, um, even though I'd been practicing for over 20 years when I wrote Better Apart, I had this idea that the divorce litigators would buy a box of this book and hand the, hand them out to their clients. But of course, what's really happened is the mediators are handing it out rather than the litigators. But if you are listening and you are in litigation, it's really designed to be a companion for you. That's, uh, it's just a wonderful resource and it's an easy read. Uh, but before we wrap up, uh, do you want to tell people where, where they can find more about the work that you're doing for other professionals in the, in the field? You do a, a ton of work for, for the field itself. So you can find me at gabriellehartley.com where you can find everything that I'm offering both for people getting divorced and for divorce professionals. This is wonderful. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real treat to uh, meet you and learn more about the work that you've uh, uh, done in the field and for those uh, seeking a uh, mindful divorce. Uh, We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to get to talk to both of you. And we'll breathe easier from here on out, Pete. That's right. I'm tingly, Seth. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for uh, downloading and listening to this show. We appreciate your time and attention. On behalf of Gabrielle Hartley and Seth Nelson, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.